Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. And here we are. Look at that. Hi, everybody. Another episode of Almost Awakened. We are here with the Dream Team, Bill Real, Janice Spangler, Anthony Miller, and we are doing part two of Brian McLaren's book, uh, Faith After Doubt, which the four of us have been kind of glancing over this past week. Um, and so we're just going to jump right in because when the four of us get together, we can, I mean, any one of these pages we could spend two hours on. So we're just going to jump right in here. So last time Jana did a fantastic job just kind of outlining stage one and stage two of Brian McLaren's kind of four stages process that he's outlining in this book. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and, and listen to that podcast first. So we're talking about, you know, stage one is simplicity, stage two is complexity. And then this section that we're going to do today is we're moving from complexity to perplexity. And there's five chapters here, and we're just going to kind of briefly give our thoughts on each of the five chapters. And the first chapter is talking about doubt as descent, D-E. S-C-E-N-T. And so what we're talking about as far as perplexity, and I'll just kind of lay this groundwork and then let everybody go here, is when we move from simplicity to complexity, it's like, oh, the world is a little bit more complicated than what I thought. But when you make the move from complexity to perplexity, that's when you not only just like have a few nagging doubts, you fully give in to the process of doubts, which is moving from life is a little bit more complicated than I thought to I know nothing. Like I don't even know up from down anymore, like fully giving into that process, um, which, you know, has a lot of benefits and it's just part of the process. And we'll talk about that. But one thing that I want to read that I think is really useful for our audience is that it says, it says in the book, uh, it often takes a faith crisis to force someone to move out of stage two. So, you know, for stage one, life was really simple. For stage two, there may be a leader that says, you know, if you just follow these three easy steps or if you follow these five things, you'll be able to kind of handle all this complexity. And eventually it's just not enough. So it may be like I followed the three easy steps. I still got divorced. I followed the five certain cures and I still feel depressed. I've been working on the seven keys to biblical prosperity, but I'm deeper in debt. And so what happens is moving. So you move from stage one, which is dualism, stage two, pragmatism. You lose faith in the kind of authoritarian leaders of simplicity and the success coaches of complexity in or outside of the church. And eventually the quest for honesty and depth burns like a fire in the belly and baptizes people into stage three, which is perplexity. Life in stage three feels more simple, more, it's more than just complex. It's downright mysterious and downright perplexing when you fully accept, I may know nothing. 
So thoughts that come up for you guys. I laid some groundwork there. What comes up for you for doubt as descent? So I have a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, I see a lot of people in my office um, at this point of their journey, right? Where, um, and it, and he mentions this, but I think it is almost always true that this happens because all of those five-step plans of the complexity do fail, like you said, right? So something in my experience, in my reality, in my lived experience is now no longer uh, in harmony with the things that I have learned, the things that I have held onto for my meaning, for my safety, for um, my understanding in life, right? And so that's where this cognitive dissonance comes in. And this is one of the most misunderstood places from people who sit in stages one and two watching someone go through this is it just looks like they weren't exhibiting enough faith, what they call faith, right? They're not doing the right things. Obviously something is going wrong. And, um, and I just, I just wish I could convey to people how the people that come to see me who are in this space literally have no choice because to to try to just shut it all off and continue to believe the way they always have been is such a deep self-betrayal and it's actually gaslighting of our own lived experience and so i i tend to notice just it's it's descent because there is a lot of uh i i our well-being takes a gigantic hit because we're, we're really trying to figure out how to believe ourselves and believe our own experience and make sense of why, why is the stage two, why is that no longer working? And especially if we don't have role models and companions and therapists and coaches and spiritual directors, it can be really, really, really terrifying. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's some, uh, symbolism that often gets used to explain this experience like there's the sim symbolism of the rabbit hole where reality flips on itself like the alice in wonderland experience where nothing that you thought was real before is real in the same way and you question whether it's real at all it just all unravels or in the last episode i shared uh my stake president when i was going through my stay intro into perplexity my stake president uh, shared this analogy imagine you spent your whole life building a beautiful thousand piece puzzle that was prescribed to you and it gave you meaning and purpose in life and confidence and trust and community and everything and then one day through through no fault of your own your entire thousand piece puzzle gets shoved onto the floor and there it lies on the floor in a pile of a thousand broken crumbled pieces and what you're going to do now is you're going to reach down this is his uh, analogy you're going to reach down and you're going to pick up one piece of the puzzle at a time and you're going to look at it and you're going to sit with it and you're going to decide whether that could be possibly part of your new puzzle and then you'll set it down on your table and and maybe the next piece it doesn't work for you and you're going to set it aside and over time you're going to accumulate pieces and you're going to trim the edges and you're going to file it a little bit and out of that you're going to build a new puzzle 
and it'll be a lot smaller than the older one, but it'll be a lot more meaningful because it's one that you built for yourself. And when I was in the depths of that dark night of the soul unraveling experience, it was too painful even to pick up one piece of the puzzle. It was so difficult. But over time, that analogy became meaningful for me. Um, I'd share a couple things in the chapter that Brian explains is that um, up until this stage, there's a tremendous amount of trust that the system or the puzzle works. And this shift into complexity um, uh, prevents you, uh, prevents the person to uh, be able to shelf the dysfunctions and the harms of the institutions that we saw in the past that we didn't fully grapple with or deal with. Um, and we can't, we can't ignore those or spiritually bypass or choose intentional ignorance for those things anymore. And so we become very skeptical and very suspicious, which is extremely threatening for people who still find value and trust in the institutions, in the authority. And, and, and so there's this perception that our countenance has changed and that we become angry and skeptical and so forth. And, and those things are true, but not for the reasons that the believers think that they're true. It's not because Satan has taken a hold of us or because we've committed some great sin. It's because we've walked through that We've, we've exercised faith to walk through that doorway of doubt into this next stage. Yeah. Um, in the stage of simplicity, you know, I get, I get baptized into my faith and I'm, I'm on the path and there's all these experts all around me. And complexity didn't bother me either because now I was the expert in the room. I was the one who understood the nuance of the gospel. I was the one who was able to answer the questions in class when no one else understood. So that felt really good too. And then there comes this moment where I remember being in a discussion board and where we were hashing out a difficult issue in our, in our faith. And I, I knew the apologetic response and I was saying it and somebody messaged me off to the side and said, Hey, just so you know, and, and they were a believer. They said, just so you know, this issue in particular is way more messy than, than you know it to be, and your answers aren't going to really solve the problem. And I became kind of aware in that moment, it was almost like this light bulb moment where I go like, oh, there are things that I can't put back together easily. And so the idea of perplexity for me was really leaning into sensing that my faith not only didn't have the answers in a lot of places, but the answers they did have were just simply wrong. And, and to sit with what perplexity was, as you guys are saying, like doubt is dissent. You mentioned the rabbit hole, Anthony. I use that one all the time because it goes forever. Um, I started reading voraciously about my religion as a teenager investigating the church. And uh I, I still find myself to be that person who's trying to learn things brand new every day, like crazy. And I thought there would be a moment where like, Oh, I've learned everything that this religion has. And the reality is no. And, and, and it, it's not like I, I, the more I read, the more I solve the, the original problems, it's the more it opens wide up and nothing solves anything. 
And so I've gotten to a point where, and, and we'll get into this later as we talk about these other, these other um, facets of doubt, but doubt is dissent was this moment where I recognized that there might be people outside my faith who have a better understanding, more context, more information, a more articulate and reasonable argument. And once I let go of, at least in part, the authorities inside my tribe and started to seek out voices outside, I sort of started to realize, like, I don't know who's right anymore. I don't know what what works and what doesn't. But I know that certain voices sound more appealing to my inner soul. And they were voices that were outside more than in. But it is absolute chaos, uh, the descent portion of doubt. Yeah, can I actually say something that brings something up, Bill, that I think he makes a really important distinction. It's one that I see happen a lot when people are going through faith crisis, one big misunderstanding. There are different types of faith crisis. And he talks about lateral moves here, right? Like there's a lateral move. Uh, we, we tend to lump everybody. Well, everybody who leaves their faith is, is this is faith development. And that's not necessarily true. A lateral move would look like, I don't like your five-step plan because it doesn't match my life, but I'm going to go seek and find another five-step plan that works better for me. And there's a lot of that going on, a lot of these lateral moves. And I've seen whole podcasts dedicated to people coming back because they realized that they didn't like the five-step plan. They found another five-step plan and that didn't work as well. Oh, okay. I'll live with this five-step plan, right? But it is not the same thing as someone saying five-step plans are too simple and they don't actually match the greater reality. That's the difference in entering into dissent. And the reason it's so disarming is because there aren't any more five-step plans. There is no more like this is so simply right and wrong. And that doesn't mean everyone falls into moral relativism. It just means that it's not that simple. Let me ask you a question, Jana, um, with your with your expertise, especially the work that you do with Enneagrams. Are some any are some personality types and or Enneagram numbers, is it harder to let go of the five-step plan than others? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, the fours never liked the five-step plan to begin with, right? So um, you know, depending on you know, if you are more success driven, if you're you know, like the threes, if you're the ones who really like the right and wrong structure, if you're, you know, it, it can be really hard to move on. Fives can be very, you know, convinced pretty easily if you just give them a better argument, right? Because the last thing they want to do is be foolish. So yeah, I mean, we could go through the whole thing and talk about all of those um, ways of, of approaching it, but a hundred percent, there are certain types that are more, are going to be like jumping right into dissent. And in some, in some ways it's going to feel freeing, more freeing. In some ways it's, it's not going to be all the, all of their ideal, idealization is going to be also blown to shreds. So I don't know. It's people experience it differently. There is many ways to step through this as there are people under the sun, but yeah, we can, it's kind of fun to play around with those different uh, ways of orienting to our personalities in the world and how that is, is affected. Um, so I have a, I have a couple of questions uh, that I'm interested in your feedback on. So there, there are people who 
have an acute switch that happens and everything crashes, right? Then there are people that have the death of a thousand cuts. Like when someone asks about your faith crisis, like Brit would answer, which faith crisis? Like the one that started when I was, what, 15 or something like that was your first one. Um, and then there are people uh, that I, who I see, um, friends who I have, who had, who had a collapse and then something happened that suspended the work of deconstruction uh you know for whatever reason you know it got suspended in time and they kind of felt like maybe they didn't have to fully go through all the work and then at some point there's another step down uh so so talk talk about that experience i mean is it personality type is it just everyone's just a little bit different you know and how do you support people through these different experiences my gut tells me i don't have a lot of research behind this my intuition tells me and i'm curious to see how everyone else would answer is that it's far more common to find way stations along the way with deconstruction because with our brains it's very hard to I, I would almost say that it's that's that it's impossible that like one day you're a full on believing in stage one, let's just say Mormonism, and then you learn everything that you know to go into complexity, and then you totally like, you know, the illusion of the self and free will and and historical Jesus and everything crumbles, and then you get to the other side, which is, you know, doubt is a part of life and in, you know, a lot of humility and things like that, like that process, it's just not done in a day. Shelves can crack in a, you know, shelves can crash in a day of like things that I haven't been thinking of that all of a sudden like come upon me at once. But that process of, of going through stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, um, I, I find that it's much more common in my experience that we find way stations along the way as our brain is making sense of these things. And so you may, find, I was talking to Jana off air, you may find a home in nuanced Christianity and feel okay there for a while. And then deconstruction keeps the process wasn't finished. And so you keep going at some point. Or um, you may find you may make a lateral move and you become an ex Mormon, but that becomes your new religion. And you actually don't kind of grow out of that for a while. And then and then the deconstruction continues. So for me, in my experience, I see way stations as a part of the process because our brains and Bill and I talked about this when we did our bias episode is that our brains need anchors. Our brain is just searching in those moments for some way to make some order out of chaos. And so I think it's more common to find kind of little stops along the way um, in order to just yeah, get a breath before going kind of back into the rabbit hole. What do you and, think? Well, I was just going to say, add to what you guys are all saying, which is that every human being is just in some way different than every other human being, right? That, you know, that kind of, uh, kind of that biblical perspective of the sands uh, all across uh, the world, like every person is an individual. And, and Jana, you mentioned like not, not moral relativity. And I would want to push back and say a little bit of moral relativity that every human really has a completely different set of needs, uh, perspective, history, predisposition that a set of 10 commandments, especially the 10 we were given maybe, 
don't exactly cover everything. And, and some of them aren't healthy to impose on people. And that part of the perplexity was me realizing that one set of rules wasn't going to fit everyone and that I needed to make room that different human beings were going to handle every situation differently than I would handle it. And hence God telling us how to behave no longer made sense to me. Yeah. I think you make a really good point. And I, I would, I would say that I think you're absolutely right. Circumstances are so different for different people. Um, and so often we want to take our story and lay it on the rest of the world, regardless of where we're situating, right? Whether we're, we're, one of the stage three in perplexity, questioning everything. We're also judging all the other people the way they're doing that, right? Um, and so I would, let me amend just this moral relativism. I was kind of thinking of how people in the first two stages see it and the way that they accuse people of moral relativism, I don't think is a thing, <laughs> but I do think we get a lot more flexibility in the way that we do the framings of our morality and that those are necessary. Um, but this is what I would say is so much of this is personality, but a lot of this is also um, the way we situate in our world you know some people are not in a place where they are free to really explore what this is you know brian gave it an example in the book of someone who i think it was cancer hit someone in his family something like that and he's like i don't have the time to be doing this deconstruction i don't i can't be going and reading all of your books and figuring all this out i just need the simplicity of my belief and my faith that will get me through this and and Brian says, yeah, that if if you're you you can do that, and you can hold on to it for a long time if if your loved one survives cancer, but if it doesn't and you've put all your eggs in that basket, you've got another big challenge coming, right? But there are times when people just situationally they're they they are maybe dependent on their spouse for all of their well you know their financial well being. And they don't have the ability to go there. And it's too, it tears them apart in too many ways. And so they're just like, you know what? No, I'm going to shut that door. I'm going to run back to this. And for a lot of people, that is probably in their best interest. You know, Brian is quick to say, and, and maybe we'll get into this, that we've got to be really careful with how we use these staging models because they can be used as weapons when we assume that development is always best. And it, it, that is not necessarily true. You're just, you know, there's, there's nothing inherently better about being an adult than being a child. Like they, they, in a lot of ways, a child has a lot more capacity easily for joy and happiness than an adult does. But an adult also, you know, as we get more development, we get more capacity for some, some greater things, but we also get a lot of problems. Yeah. So I think... It's, it's sometimes easy to have judgment for people who run back to the earlier stages, but for a lot of people, depending on, again, personality, how you situate in life, what, you know, so many factors, you couldn't name them all. Um, everyone does this differently. So you, you asked an important question, Anthony, which is how, what do we do to support people? We listen and we believe them that their experience mm. is what it is. And we listen, we listen more deeply. So to find that, the ways to support it. 
the active listening, the holding the hand of a stranger, the ministering presence part. That's it. As you each were talking, I was reminded of the time that I spent with Lindsay Hansen Park when I was like six weeks into my dark night of the soul. And I remember one thing that she shared with me is, is that people who experience this often have a propensity to look for new prophets. And, and she said, don't look for new prophets because that that's way too messy. So, so real look for mentors look for people who have you know walked where you're walking before but but don't don't reinstitutionalize a position where you're abdicate abdicating your your sense of uh well-being and discernment and how you make sense of things to a new prophet and uh and that was extremely helpful for me because i was looking Someone had to have an answer, right? Like I needed, I needed, maybe it was Thomas McConkie, you know, or maybe it was the Givens or maybe it was somebody else. And, and that was really helpful advice from Lindsay. That I think is like the hidden part of, especially Mormon deconstruction is because like the spiritual house can fall, the shelf can fall, but all of the scaffolding is still there. And Bill and I talk about this on our podcast a lot of like, oh, we just found some old biases or some old patterns or some old things that are still there that like we need to look, look at and think about. All right, there's one more part of this chapter that I want to just highlight um, before we move on, just because I think it's really helpful for this audience that um, sometimes plays in the space of post-religious communities. Something that I thought was really interesting in this section is that there really aren't great communities that are just founded and stay generation after generation in stage three, in perplexity. And he talked about five reasons why. So structure, um, stage three, see people see the damage done by structures and institutions. So there's distrust there. Authority, again, same thing, suspicious to authority. Purpose. Stage three people often feel allergic to the level of confidence implicit in any call to action. Um, belonging, again, um, this idea of just being allergic to it or they kind of want to stay on the fringe because they don't want to get hurt again. And then suspicion. They're just genuinely suspicious of organizations, institutions, people, truth, all of that. And so what happens is, again, when you're looking for a place like, where can I go if this is where I am? There's not really good. There's, there's no church of perplexity that is there because this stage is about tearing down. And we just have to recognize that the part of the process that you're in is kind of tearing down. And so there's going to be no like nice church where you can just walk in. That's just going to give you kind of all the tools for that, which is why this is a part of the deconstruction where you have to walk a little bit of it alone. And um, some of that, obviously, for the center of action and contemplation. And Jana is the expert on this. Some of that is like this this thought about Jesus of like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's part of this deconstruction, especially because there's going to be no community um, that can really model all this for you because it's kind of the anti-community is there's a part of this that is a dark tunnel that you have to go through alone in order for that kind of resurrection to fully happen, in order for that full process to take place, that full death, full darkness, full aloneness that leads into 
that leads into life. And so if you're at a way station, it's almost like, you know, there's more down that rabbit hole. You haven't totally died yet. <laughs> and um, rebirth in all of the mystic stories, rebirth doesn't happen until you really do feel kind of like you're dying and alone. But knowing that it's part of the process hopefully can give you some comfort. If you're in that place, I know it would have if I had had someone tell me that in that place, you know. Yeah, one of the the big things that Western Christianity in stage one and stage two really tries to do is save us from the descent, which is actually not the story of Jesus, which is just kind of ironic, right? Jesus said, I'm the way. And he, he, he went on the path of descent. And as Richard Rohr says, everybody else has been trying to climb back up the escalator he came down the whole time. And you know, or we're, we're trying to crawl our way back into the Garden of Eden somehow, even though we understand that this life was supposed to be harder than that. We don't want to actually experience it. And so much of our, I think, religious experience has been formulated around how to keep us from descent, from, from doing this exact journey that breaks us down to open us up to greater love that, that Jesus was offering. And Jesus showed it through great suffering and great love. But it's something that we really don't want to experience when we're in stage one and two. That's not the way it's supposed to be. I remember in November of 2016, um, I was back in Indiana going to a, a Mennonite family wedding. And, and I was still having a really difficult time. And Bill had to at least have spent two hours on the phone with me. And, and he sent me a link or a message to... Uh, I can't remember what the title of the paper was, but it's like 20 or 30 papers pages about the stages of faith. And I think it was a Presbyterian or a Protestant priest that Maybe wrote the it. John Pauline. Yeah. The, the apocalypse the other one I might or have something. Sent would have been Perry's scheme of cognitive development. Yeah. Um, I think it was the first one, but it went through and it explained, uh, Fowler's stages of faith in an abbreviated way without the big giant book. And it was so... Bill, when you shared that with me, that was so helpful for me, not that it gave me a map of what my future would look like, but it gave me a structure to really feel like what I was experiencing was a natural experience that's universal. And and that was super huge. And probably something that my, at least my community at that time couldn't have given me that thing because they would have wanted me to return to Fowler's stage three faith. I want to, um, so Anthony, and you're hundred percent right, Anthony, and I'm, I'm going back to your previous comment. And then what you guys kind of said after that, there's this idea of like no more profits and, and you ought to keep looking for voices that know more than you. Um, I don't want anybody to find themselves in a unhealthy connection with another individual who wields power over them. And in the same way, Jana, that you're pointing to Jesus as an example of dissent, in the same way that I would point people to voices like Alan Watts or Eckhart Tolle or Brene Brown, there are people on this planet who deep in their soul understand things better than I did, and most people do when they're going through this process of deconstruction. And those voices, so I guess what I'm saying is that when when we warn people to not take in new prophets, my fear is that people will stop looking 
for intelligent, articulate, informed voices that point them to the moon. And I would suggest that in on some level that you keep looking for new prophets. Yeah, I, I think that's such an important point because I think that we have conflated a little bit in those of us who have come from an LDS background, we've conflated prophet with leadership. And really prophet, if we're looking at the traditions came from the margins, they came from people who were just speaking truth to power. And prophetic voices are important. And people who are noticing something in their life and learning things and having wisdom and putting their material out there, it's really important. And what I always just help people to see is it is really important, whomever you're going to follow, <laughs> is to ask yourself what part of this resonates with me, what part of it does not. And, and that can be a question of what resonates with me today. You know, come back to that that person in five years and it may shift less of it may feel like it's resonating or more of it does. Um, but that's how you find your own journey is giving yourself that power, not giving it away to say someone else knows better than I do, but to say, what does this person have that has value for me today? That's definitely a different attribution of meaning to profit. And I agree with that. All right, good stuff, guys. So we'll move on to uh, the second chapter that we're going to talk about of five, which is doubt as dissent. So not descent, but dissent with an I. And I kind of, uh, in my mind, kind of phrased this chapter of instead of speaking truth to power, it's speaking honesty to certainty. So at some point when you're in this kind of doubt phase, you eventually have to, sometimes it's speaking out honestly, but a lot of times it's just a lot of self-honesty that when the certainty falls, speaking honesty in that place. And so he talked about um, falling away, falling from grace, slipping, backsliding, losing faith, losing footage, losing ground, losing God. You're, you're, and um, actually being honest about what is happening to you. So stage Three feels just different. It feels disrupt disruptive. Everything we constructed, we now deconstruct. And the summits that we climbed, we now leave behind. We cut our losses, but secretly we fear what will be left or what will we or what will end up being left after this kind of state of spiritual bankruptcy. Will there be anything left after this period of doubt? And so the question I kind of ask want to ask is how did it feel to let go of um, something that you had worked so hard for even some of these like way station places what did it feel to let go of um, a place that you a summit that you had climbed that wasn't home anymore that you had to let go of and kind of what that process was like for you so I'll open that up I mean, for me, it was terrifying because the most treasured experiences that I had during my life and the most treasured community and belonging and roles and reputation and my family connections and everything uh, were all intertangled with all the rest of the mess. And what was terrifying to me is I recognized that I needed to put in the work to try to f unpack what those things were. And I was terrified that I might come to the conclusion that they had no meaning. 
It was unbelievably terrifying. So I'm going to answer this like the, the Enneagram one that I am, <laughs> which is it was highly guilt ridden. It was this really internal struggle because, you know, once we have a special uh, talent for dissent, <laughs> we have a special talent for pointing out the things that aren't working and for speaking, trying to speak our truth. But we're, But when a one like me gives ourselves over to a system, uh, we can't imagine it's a huge leap for us to go and say, well, actually, I, my reality could be something that, um, you know, I can speak to something that was difficult. I can speak to something that is hard for me and actually have that be okay. And it was actually kind of soul crushing because as I, you know, came out with that and I kind of, you know, I could, I felt like I could articulate things pretty well and I could, you know, bring people over to seeing my way of things. But then when I ran up against this big wall of people feeling like, oh, dissent is not okay. Culturally, this is not what we do. You need to pull up your bootstraps and put on a happy face and just keep going. Um, and when you're in the shaky period of this, it just feels like, oh my gosh, am I, I, am I the, I'm the problem again. I, I just, I just need to put on my happy face. Right. So it's, for me, it was this gut wrenching thing of, and it took years of trying to take back that ability to say, no, I actually do feel this harm. It's real. It's not going away. I'm not alone. And I actually do need to say something about this, but man, that disrupts the system like no other when we're in dissent because a system that's working really well and has the five ways they're like but don't complain about that you're just situating this you're you're you're, you're in the wrong headspace if you did you see the five points if you just do that you can you can forget what you're going through and get back on plan so for me it was it, it's it was it was gut wrenching because it was a lot it took a long time for me to find my sense of self that i had given over to the group and to find some some ground in how do I dissent without just blowing up every room I go into of believers. I was I was really lucky that early on in this process, one, it was brought to my attention voices inside our system who disagreed with leaders, but had some sort of stamp of approval for the way in which they were doing it. So I I started to sense that you could go beyond what the, the what the outer authorities of our tribe had said or taught and you could get some sort of leniency with that then i was lucky to come across as uh, anthony mentioned stages of faith and various paradigms of that um various ways to understand how human development works and i quickly it just made sense to me i looked at those stages of development and i said that that seems like that's the way it works i could I could kind of follow my progression to the moment I was, and I could kind of sense the voices that my my inner being saw as being wise, as being further ahead and matching up with those, how those paradigms explain those later stages. And so for me, this, this doubt as descent, it's the moment you start to develop kind of your own inner authority. You start to go like, oh, I don't trust exactly the leaders of my tribe and when I test doing and saying things based on what my gut tells me, 
that seems to be right significantly more often. And so dissent for me was the ability to start going like, hey, your authority in this tribe means nothing, or at least it doesn't mean what it used to. And I now feel empowered to raise my hand and say, you might be higher up in the ecclesiastical hierarchy, but my inner voice is imposing that I have a healthier, more correct and reasonable approach. And as I tested that, and again, I'm lucky, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a white male, I'm heterosexual, I'm cisgender. Um, the church was working pretty dang well for me and I was in leadership positions all the time. So it was an easy thing maybe than it would be for others. But as I did so, I don't know, I just felt really good about pushing back against bullshit, no matter how high up the hierarchy it was. And, it, and it's, it felt like it worked. That's like a little bit of your Enneagram eight is showing of like, Ooh, I can, I'm going to push here because you're pushing, you've taken yeah. something from me. And I feel like that's back. a little yeah. bit of that part of you coming out yeah. for me. Um, I would describe it as like a total ego death. Like my ego was so wrapped up into this because like Bill said, there was a part of me that really liked being the person with like the nuanced answer and I really liked, I was that, I was the cool seminary teacher that everyone wanted to transfer to my class. And I really wanted to be a professor of world religions. And I really wanted to, um, I, I, I mean, I'm in theology school. I'm in a doctorate program in theology school. And so my entire life and my ego, and I get to be that guy with like, the cool biblical, you know, answer of how we can make this really mystical and meaningful. And I had like the biggest library of books. And then again, like, you know, deconstruction calls and like, I know you've made like a safe little place here, but like, there's more questions that kind of demand your attention. And I had to recognize in myself that in order to move forward, I needed to let go of the ego that was attached to my doctorate program or being that person in church or whatever it was, because I was, I was losing my faith in God and I had to be honest about it at first to myself and then to everyone else. And the resistance for me was like, nobody likes being a 40 year old baby, but like when you have an ego death of everything that I had worked for since I was, you know, 16 or whatever, and you're just going to let all of that work go and move on somewhere unknown. Um, you do like, I felt like I can't be a 40 year old baby. Like I don't even believe in God anymore. And I have a doctorate in theology. Like how am I even going to function in the world? Like I don't have anything now and allowing that ego to die was a big part of my process. In fact, it was, I'm very into like symbolism and rituals to kind of help me. And I actually took my library of books and took it to like a used thrift store because it wasn't the books. It was representative of my egos attached to all of this. And I need to let it go in order to move forward into the unknown and not knowing what that was, but I had to kind of let go of some of that in order to keep going. So I'd, I'd also comment there's a both and experience here because because along the way, for whatever reasons, sometimes it uncovers spiritual trauma as well. And so, like, I remember the episodes that the liturgist podcast did and that you did, Bill, about spiritual trauma. And, and whatever, whatever that it leads to that experience, whether it's, 
your body telling you that you're not in a safe place or that you're at a place where you know if you really express your dissent that you do not belong anymore and it's not safe for you there. Or you realize also that the people that you're with who are in a stage that can't hold space for what you're experiencing, they are going to keep co-opt your story and they're going to gaslight you and and tell your story in a way that is totally not representative of what you were experiencing. And so that gets mixed in, you know, along the way with these other things that we're talking about, where you get to a place where you just have to speak truth. All right. Any other thoughts? We'll move forward here. Yeah, it just hurts so bad. You have to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just say one other quick thing. I think this is the place where our, because it's so much about taking that personal authority back, this is the place where we really start noticing this, this paradoxical thing that we're all dealing with in religion, which is this idea of agency and how it meets boundary maintenance. Because, you know, even as we're trying to nuance these things and be that person, I so relate to what you said, Britt, you know, like I can, I can be the one in the room that can make this feel all big and mystical and amazing, right? Um, but the more we do that, and we're true to our own agency, and we're, we're actually, in many, for many of us, we're actually exercising agency in a more robust way than we've ever felt able to before. But it quickly bumps up against this idea of no, you're you're not you're not coloring within the lines enough, and where you're going is dangerous, and um, and and that can also be death by a thousand cuts as as you explore your own agency. Yeah, the stuff's gonna hurt, but I'm so excited to introduce our first doorway, our first okay, like we are. The phoenix has been burning and dying for a while, and finally we have something happening here. And so we're going to talk about many doorways in the future chapters, but the first doorway that's kind of opened um, as you go through this process is doubt as love. And so um, this is where, like, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of Jana and all of her work with Jesus. And uh, it says, you know, Jesus looks more brilliant than ever in stage three because simplicity and complexity are first half of life, the containers that are necessary to start life. Perplexity is the transition period. And then we're starting to enter into some stage four places, which are which is harmony in the second half of life where you see paradox, where you fill your life with meaning and see things in balance. So some of the core values of um, kind of moving doorways that are opened up when you're in this perplexity place is appreciation, empathy, wonder, and love showing up as a human being without labels, because you've probably already had enough of an ego death that you can kind of start to do that now, where not only are you showing up with maybe less labels than you used to, but you also kind of are able to see human beings underneath their labels and then doubt as kind of a doorway to loving in a way that you never maybe loved before. And so for me personally, this looks like 
when I'm sitting in a room, which is my favorite, still my favorite thing to do. And what gives my life the most joy is not finding a prophet who's going to tell me his five-step program to the answers of the universe. Like I'm, I'm over it. (laughs) I'm over that. I'm skeptical. Right. But sitting in a room with people where I can be honest about my ideas, my doubts, just what it feels like to be a human right now and sitting with other people who genuinely want to hear and genuinely can hold that and see me and still love me in those places. And then I can do the same for them and sitting in those kinds of rooms. um, I could not have imagined in stage one and two, um, I could not have imagined the intimacy that doubt opens up Because when you fully go into that doubt place and you can show up in a room without your ego and really be honest about your human experience and have someone else meet you in that place, that's an intimacy that I never imagined in earlier stages that I could not have gotten to without doubt. Um, Doubt as love. There, there was a a moment. So my family and my faith and my culture, my, my society taught me unhealthy perspectives. One of those being, uh, in regards to being homophobic and, uh, my faith certainly taught me that. And I remember I'm, I'm, uh, I used to work for a floor covering company and I would spend half my time working on the road, traveling to and from homes to do measurements for, for floor covering. And it gave me a lot of time to play podcasts. I would, I had an MP3 player and I would just, I had thousand files on there. And, and one of the things I ended up downloading at one point was a podcast episode from the cultural hall, which I, I think is still around, but much different than it used to be. They would much more prevalently tackle kind of uh, the complex issues inside our, our religion. And there was a particular story of a family um, who had a uh, a gay son, and he just wasn't treated appropriately uh, within his local congregation. And I'm driving down the road, and I'm listening to the mother tell this story. And you you guys probably all could guess who this is. So I, I'm driving down the road, and she's telling her story. She's just laying it out and saying, here's what happened. Here's what happened first. Here's what happened second. Here's how they treated him. Here's how the leadership of the ward responded. And it, I, I broke out in tears and I, I remember pulling off the side of the road and I just spent, I don't know, 15 minutes, 10 minutes crying. And it was like this instantaneous movement, like something I, I, prior to listening to it, I believe the world worked one way. And after listening, I believe the world worked a different way. And, and there are these moments in our lives where things just change. And be and and I couldn't have gotten there without part of the process of the earlier stage of these fractures and feeling loss and realizing the world isn't the way you thought it was, because that earlier stage opens you up now to be able to see other human beings and their humanity is just as valid as yours. And so you start to lean into like what is right and what is wrong. What is healthy? What is unhealthy? What is responsible and irresponsible? And you start to notice there are there are exceptions to it. Like 
over here, this person behaves this way and that seemed really responsible. And over here, that person is, is behaving the same way and that seems irresponsible. The rules aren't consistent. What people need space to be isn't consistent. And I started to look at the world with brand new eyes, really trying to see people's humanity, maybe for the very first time in my life. I, I remember, you know, this doorway of doubt. Uh, the result was that I shed this construct that there was such thing as choice, chosen, or favored people of God. You know, people who had extra access to God because of the gift of the Holy Ghost, or that had keys of discernment, or you know, that were able to live a certain way because they knew what the commandments of God were. And, and that all collapsed. And the effect that it had for me is it it exponentially elevated the value of every human being that I met. Like I had, I had this amazing, it's hard to describe, experience of empathy for everyone that I met. Like we'd go to a restaurant and the server would come, you know, and she's all tatted up and, and, and I would have passed some sort of judgment in spite of that. I don't think I was really bad before, but, but I felt a depth of compassion and connection to that person, that, that, that person was a gift of a human being and that her story was a valid story and merited to be witnessed and validated and and Brian talks about the difference between stages and states where a stage you know is broader and a and a state is maybe a fleeting or a temporary thing but it was a period of time that that was just like this probably the biggest gift of my faith crisis is is that every human being was exponentially you know, elevated and value and this, this exponential enhancement of empathy. And I remember I was counseling with my bishop and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. And he said, well, the atonement is working in your life and you're seeing all these brothers and sisters, you know, uh, of God. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't really think that's what's happening, you know, because I don't believe there was a fall anymore. So I don't know how to make sense of a need for an atonement, you know, the way I used to attribute meaning to it. But I just feel this enhanced love for everyone. And I remember in online discussions, as well as in-person discussions, I discovered that this experience is not uncommon to have this experience exponentially enhanced sense of love and connection and empathy for other humans beings. And when I was reading this chapter with Brian, uh, in terms of doubt as the introduction to love and loving really being the answer, it gave me glimpses of that experience that I had. Yeah, I think that for me, one of the, the key moves that this opened up for me and that I think um, it's an opportunity to open us all up to at this stage is um, a really deep understanding of the need for differentiation in order to be able to access this true love for all people. When, when you're situating in stages one and two and you see everything through the lens of the structure first, 
of the right and wrong or the optimization of what's best or you know this is this is what we have to do and it makes we what we don't notice at the time is that we are actually seeing people through a lens that I don't think exists for whatever is divine. I don't think that the divine looks through the structure, right? The structure um, can be there to support what we're trying to do with the with the divine. But if you're seeing through that lens, it it is skewed. And when that structure, this is why it requires doubt. This is why I think Brian is bold in saying that only doubt can save the world. It's because we have to have the structures fall. In order for us to truly see one another, we have to allow people to be different. We have to allow people, we have to have deep empathy. Brene Brown says that empathy requires that we believe people the way they experience things, not the way we think they should experience things. Because it's our life, our the way we've come up in the world that tells us what another person should be experiencing. But it's this really important developmental step to be able to actually deeply and without judgment take perspective of another human being and hear who they are and hear their heart. And for me, I could not do it until I myself had experienced some marginalization and some othering and felt myself to be a reliable person and to have other people push me to the edges and not trust me and tell me how wrong I was and try to gaslight my experience. It wasn't until then that I had that aha moment, kind of like the one you described, Bill, where I was just like, oh, like I'm experiencing this in this tiny microcosm in this part of my life, in my religious life. There are people in the world who experience this 24-7 because of their, you know, sexuality, gender expression, um, color of their skin, what, name the thing, name the thing that, that makes people treat people differently, whatever that is. But um, it, it, it is this shattering of there's one master story that everyone has to live in, which is usually the people for whom all the systems work and who have the power that get to define what that story is. And then we all are looking through it. That has to fall before we can really, truly see everybody and experience that love and then use a lens of love rather than the lens of the structure. Mm, this is like, this is like when you get into places that we would call mystical, this is where you get into like language gets a little tricky here because we're talking about this really expansive feeling. Right. But this is where you get into these, like, I never fully understood these, these mystic statements because of course in my, in my younger self brain, I'm always trying to figure out, well, like, what does that mean about ultimate reality? Right? Like, what, what are they trying to say? Like, what is the truth here? And, but when you get statements like, you know, we are the universe discovering itself or I am you and you are me and cosmic soul and all is one and love is the answer. These are all like very mystical phrases, right? But it's describing this place that when you go through this doubt journey, rabbit hole process, this is a door that opens up to you, which is being able to see people um, underneath kind of the labels that we used to. And it kind of requires an ego death or some suffering or some empathy in order to get to that place. And I think it's interesting that in this place, none of us 
kind of mentioned like, oh, in this place, I suddenly had all the answers to my questions. Like finally the answers made sense. It's like in this place, the question shifts, not the answers, right? So I, this is where, you know, when the, when the perplexity really digs into your bones and you accept that you may not have answers to ultimate reality because as humans, we're just really bad at this, right? And when we deeply kind of accept that, then our questions start to change. How do I want to live a meaningful life in light of not knowing what's going to happen after I die? That's a better question than these earlier stage questions, which is I need to be sure about what happens after I die in order to you know, live my life. And so this is when you get into from doing into being or mysticism or moving from perplexity to harmony. I mean, there's or, you know, there's lots of terms for this. But it's it's about opening this door to this really expansive place that can um, see things differently than we saw them before. And if we went back to Jesus, um, just as a contemplative, uh, and you really look at how many times he's either challenging people or talking to people, like, do you see this? Like, take the thing out of your eye. Like, can you see this? Like, look at, like, look differently at this. And, um, because it's just a different way of seeing it's, it's how mystics see almost. Yeah, and I love this one little statement from Brian in the book. He says, stage one and stage two, p people hear this, and he he labels it as understanding nothing. Like, you know, we don't have all the answers and whatever. Um, they hear it merely as a negation because it's like, well, then you're saying, I don't know anything. Like, it, we can get really defensive really quick when people are hearing this. But I love the way he frames this. He says, but stage four people realize that it's a confession. It's a confession that the mystery we behold beyond perplexity um, is deep beyond all knowledge. It's just a confession of a new realization that we're seeing about it. And it's not meant to negate anybody else's experience. I, I've said this before in a lot of places. I, I came to realize what it wasn't. I knew what it wasn't. I, I knew what it wasn't. I don't know what it is. And I think anybody who tries to name it, it's like, um, if you notice the, and I'm speaking directly to you three, when you notice the wisest voices in your circle of influence and notice how they tiptoe around the edges of what it is, and they don't dare get into the center of it. And then notice the voices that get right into the middle of it and claim to know every jot and tittle of it. And those are the folks that now show their cards. They are the furthest ones from it. That's the mystery. That was a, that was a bomb right there, Bill. Um, Anthony, do you have any thoughts before we move on here? No, I just, Brian has some really great stories in this chapter about moments of this clarity where, where your eyes are opened and the, there's not paint on the glass and the, you can actually see and how overwhelming that is. And, um, and my recollection was that it was it was very difficult for people that hadn't gone into perplexity into this stage to make sense of that and not feel threatened by it you know to 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 say my the the every moment of this life has exponentially increased in value because 
one thing that I believe now is that it's limited and and so it becomes more rich it becomes i have more gratitude for it and and how that is completely incoherent for someone who has this idea that this life has no meaning unless their constructs for a next life are real or true it is like we're speaking past each other mm. from yeah for me it just really helps me to uh, appreciate other people's gifts, which was harder when I was in um, kind of a tear down, burn everything phase. You know, we can we can go through a phase where it's just like burn it all, f everything, and um, opening the door to you know doubt is love or this place that we're talking about is was really when the cynic in me was finally able to like take a chill pill and just see like yeah, you may not be able to speak theology with me, but you have gifts that I don't have that I can learn from. And that took a lot of humility, but it was a gift for me on the other side of kind of this process. And it helped me not be so cynical towards, towards my fellow man, if I may say. All right, next. Um, I want to, I want to interrupt. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of our, one of our uh, viewers uh, on YouTube, Dega Vertigo uh, wrote, um, there is a religious term a religious tinged term for this uh, phrase and it's grace that, that we experience moments and periods of grace where that the meaning that you attribute to that word is insufficient to describe what the experience of grace really is. Yeah. And I, I, I think about this a lot and Bill and I have talked about this before is like how Brian describes faith is openness, right? It's the opposite of knowing it's openness or grace is kind of these moments, these kind of breakthroughs or, um, you know, divine love, maybe this place that we're talking about where you can kind of hold everyone and love them, how God may love them. And I appreciate him like re terming those words still in, I still kind of feel, I still feel like it's hard to use those words for what I'm meaning there because there's just so much baggage. And like Bill was saying, the people who are using the words faith the loudest are the ones who are not talking about openness, right? And so it makes me feel like I need to use a different word um, in conversation, but I love, um, but there's definitely these words exist in Christianity too. They just have there's 2000 years of history. There's a lot of baggage around them, but it exists. It's there. And I would also like to say, I like that he invokes Ken Wilber at, at some point in here where he's talking about states and stages and the differences between it, where he explains an, a, a moment he had very early on in his life where, you know, it's just, we, we've all, I think, had moments like this from time to time where he was just staring at a night sky and just had this feeling of overwhelming love and being part of something bigger and had some friends there and shared a really um, poignant, um, loving kind of an encounter with them. And I think it's important to note that those states can be reached regardless of the stage. So I, I just, I just like to clarify that because I don't want anyone feeling like they, that we're saying that stage one and two people lack love, you know, because they don't. And when we can have those moments, but the difference is that when we, when we start moving into a taste, an experiential taste of stage four, that's, it's just more 
uh, readily available to us. It's more of a lens we're actually experiencing and seeing the world through on a not just in a moment, not just in a transcendent spiritual moment, but in a more sustained way. Like an so, operating system change. An oper- yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. That becomes our lens. That becomes the thing that we are we are operating from is this feeling. And, 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 uh, and it, it really is an experience of being bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a great addition. Okay. So the next chapter is, I'm really excited to ask you guys this question. It's kind of a personal question, but I'm going to do it. Um, so the next section section talks about how life is messy. And so we traverse these stages all the time, right? We are constantly in this process. So I really love how he explains it. I'll put it up here for people who are on YouTube, how he talks about this process as rings on a tree. So what I really like about this idea is that in some of the other stages, you go through one through six or whatever, and it's kind of like a linear process. But what I love, and it's really kind of, uh, it, it allows me to see humans more compassionately, is by thinking of this as a process that you do over and over, like rings on a tree. And so someone who is really, really wise isn't just someone who went to stage four and then stopped. They've just done this process many times, and they've died and rebirthed and learned each time that they did it kind of. And so what I like about that is that it makes it so that it's not, you know, top or bottom or best or worst. These stages are cumulative like rings on a tree. And so we continue in these stages and we start the process over. And so I just like that because it's, it's gathering doubt as just a tool in your life. It's just a process of life, just like growing rings on a tree. So my question for you guys, if you want to share is that we're all kind of always hanging out in one of these places. Um, Simplicity, we're like, okay, like I've made sense of things, like I'm in a little calm right here. Complexity, like I'm digging into something, I have questions about something. Perplexity, like something really big shifted. Um, And then back to harmony where I'm able to and then harmony just goes right back into simplicity. And so for me personally, I was recently just kind of in a place of simplicity, like, okay, like I've, I've made sense of some things. I just have, my life feels simple. There's things that I feel like I know there's feels things that I feel like I can't know. And I've, I'm in a place of, of um, simplicity. And for me, I'm the kind of personality that's very like head oriented. And I've really been called lately in my own spiritual journey to really dig into the wisdom of my body, which I give lip service to and I talk about, but I know that I've never really fully like dove into that journey. Um, As a kind of academic, there's a joke that says, you know, academics use their body to just move their head from place to place. And so right now in my life, I'm in the stage of complexity, which is like, I have a lot of questions. I'm reading and researching things. Things seem really complex. I, it's really hard for me to make sense because I haven't spent a lot of time in this. It's really hard for me to make sense of like, what is maybe too woo for me or what has some really good science behind it. And I'm doing like Wim Hof breathing and cold therapy and I'm trying things and it feels really complex. I haven't quite made sense of it. Um, And that's just where I am in my journey because I've done this process like you guys many times. So are you guys in 
one of these particular stages in your life right now, I guess is what I wanted to ask. I'm in all of them. <laughs> Depending on the part of my life we're talking about, right? Same. Like, you know, I, I, I noticed this early on, you know, I, I kind of had my faith crisis and then pretty quickly went to the center for action and contemplation and got to work with all these mystics and learn from them. And I just felt like, oh my gosh, I've arrived. I get harmony. This is what it's all about. Second half of life, man. Like, I just want everyone to understand this. Not recognizing that I was in such an interesting little bubble and microcosm um, that just helped support me to feel more of that stage four at the moment. But I would not say my center of gravity was there. And I'm really glad that he makes this point that it's so messy. Sometimes we just like things to be linear. I'm like, oh, I've left that stage two stuff behind, you know? It, absolutely, I am still in complexity in a lot of places in my life. So, you know, I, I come back from the living school and done with kind of just that kind of study and all the time and recognize that I didn't fully do my deconstruction. I had a lot of perplexity left. And, you know, you mentioned it, Britt, you're not the only person to mention it. Like people are like, the things you're sharing on your social media, you're going through something, girl, like the last couple of years, I've gone through a lot of trauma studies, you know, and it's just this new way of picking apart what my experience as a human is. So even as I'm really deal delving into perplexity with this kind of one foot into the harmony that that when I'm really focused on my stage three perplexity is actually hard to, to feel. It's hard to access sometimes. And I like that he talks about that too. We can really churn in that stage three perplexity and get nowhere. Um, and I felt a lot of that, of, of quicksand, feeling really stuck in my perplexity. But then if I look at like my family life, my extended family, I, I was in a lot of complexity that my work on my perplexity opened up and now that brought me into perplexity with family. So I, I'm in different places in different parts of my life. Like, you know, I'm, and I, I go through this, I spend an entire maybe summer year just like breaking down everything about my family upbringing. And I think it's really important to do our healing work while we're in that perplexity because without a doorway to that harmony it can it can get really dark and stay really dark for a very long time yeah and, and yeah all of that looks differently and one of the things i just want to say is i love his tree rings because we have access to all of it right it i i when you touch into harmony it is not an experience of just toxic positivity and letting it all go. We include all of the perplexity. We include everything. But I'm now starting to touch into experiences with my family where I'm. it is more love-centered. And I am learning to let things go, but not in a way that puts me in continued harm. It's very boundaried and it's very, but it's allowing a lens of love to lead. So I just wanted to say that I love the, the messiness. I love the complexity. And yeah. I love the tree rings because and I, I like that better than asking you like, what, 
what Fowler stage are you in? Like, oh, I'm a five, like I'm a, you know, and sometimes I'm like a six, you know, I'm so great. But like, yeah, what you're talking about is like, we keep doing this over and over as humans and there's different parts of our life that can even be in different places. I was only thinking spiritually and then I'm now I'm thinking about other parts of my life and those are all in different places too. So um, I like that this, um, the, the tree rings idea lends to a little bit more complexity than just a linear path. All right, Bill. Hmm. Um, I don't even know how to answer this question. So I'm at, I'm at a, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm being much more aware of my own physical health. I'm at a stage in my life where, uh, I'm, I'm kind of probably taking a bit of a break at the moment. I'm, I'm not stressing over getting too much done. Um, I'm still trying to learn things. I try to find something every day to, to plug into my ears so that I, and learning something and I'm really deeply observing the outside world trying to better understand humanity collectively and I'm not so I'm not so worried about how I treat people cuz outside of the people who enrage me on the internet I think I do a really good job of being good to people around me I lose my cool once in a while I think we all do but generally speaking, I think I'm handling that stuff pretty well. And I, I and I'm kind of like daily making uh, an effort to be my best self, but it doesn't feel really difficult, but it's not difficult because I'm, my life isn't super full at the moment. I don't feel deeply stressed out by things. Um, really, I'm at a point where physical health is the thing that I worry the most about because it's the one thing I have no or little control over, right? Like I'm eating healthier, I'm exercising, but beyond that, anything can happen at any moment. Life is fragile. Um, I, I'm not so concerned about truth, ultimate truth. I've kind of decided I'm never going to get at that. Uh, I'm not trying to figure out the purpose of life. I'm just trying to live and um, trying to enjoy each moment as much as I can. Oh, this is a tough question. Um, so I, I built my life based on things like what I interpreted in my patriarchal blessing uh, and the models that were given to me and other blessings and counsel that I received such that I built my life so that around my current age, within five years that I could retire and go serve missions and things like that. Right. And, uh, I built my life with the idea that I was going to have lots of grandkids and I was going to have lots of children and we have two children. We may never have grandchildren. And, um, so, so, and I'm a financial planner, right? So I plan for contingencies, but I plan, my life in in the way that I plan with my clients and and so now at my current age I'm in this I'm realizing that I'm unpacking and going through this process like Jana's talking about going through it with family and other things besides just the conceptualization of religious belief or spirituality 
I mean, at this stage where I'm doing this about the rest of things, you know, and, and at the one, at one, from one standpoint, I want to, uh, like we talked about when we talked about the Buddhism audiobook, I, I don't want to react to things. I want to thoughtfully respond to things and I want to lean into things. Uh, and I, and I want to, uh, to the extent I can shed ego, um, but life is so complex that there's so much more that I get to go through this process about thing after thing and, and, and part of my life after part of my life. And so, um, I, I would say that I feel more practiced now, uh, than when I went through my faith crisis six and a half years ago. Um, and so maybe I have tools or the, I know where to look maybe for mentors or models in ways that I didn't know before, but it's still work. It's still work. Yeah. And I hope the listeners get that sense of like, we, yes, have like gone through the dark night of the soul and many of those, but like we have not arrived. And I think that that's the overall message of of kind of this chapter is like the lines are blurry. Life is messy. We jump around these stages all the time. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing pretty well. And then my family comes visit me for Thanksgiving and it's like, Oh, I'm still here, (laughs) you know? Um, And so we, I, I think that that, that gives me a lot of, it just kind of lowers the temperature for me of like, if I was going to go through the next 10 years and I become, I don't know, an expert mountain climber, that's maybe that's going to be my next thing. And then I, and all of my ego is wrapped around that. And I have, um, you know, people that are sponsoring me, Patagonia is sponsoring me. And then I feel like I can let it go. I feel like now, you know, with, with, learning about kind of how we are as humans that I can now say, okay, it's, I can do this. Like I can let this ego die and, and move in this direction that I'm called to with a little bit more grace than like the hanging on by the fingernails, making this process longer than what it needed to be, which I've done at various stages, (laughs) made this process longer and more painful than it needed to be because I just didn't know that I could let go. So I'm going to read one. Oh, Jenna, you go. I just want to say something about that. I think it's really true. And you're hitting on something. I think so much of this is situational just as human beings, even if you have experienced moments of ego death, maybe they've been prolonged. Maybe you've had situations where you do that. It's not a lasting thing. It doesn't stay with us. Um, we can train our, you know, we can train to get more of that in our lives. But when, when we, our bodies feel under threat, when we feel, you know, uh, really upset by something, we are going to collapse. Like, I can't tell you how many times Brian talked about this, how he wrote a response to a critic and he was so proud of it. He could take down every little thing they said and show them all the logical fallacies, right? I can't tell you how often I do this. Like I respond to something on Facebook and I just like, and then I read it and I delete it all. All four of us can be guilty of getting into Facebook fights that take right? up our day. All four of us. Oh, yes. For yourselves, you three. I've seen all four, all of you, myself included, I waste an afternoon on Facebook. Yeah. Guilty. guilty. It <laughs> even happens in it. places that you don't see it. 
Exactly. And, tell, and let me tell you how bad it is, Britt, is that I've deleted half the comments and tried again. Like, it was really bad. It was really bad. And I go straight to black and white thinking and I have to look it back over and go, okay, never mind. Delete, delete, delete. Center. So yeah. it really takes effort. It really takes effort to stay in those places of those more developed spaces that we've tasted. It, it takes real effort. It's not just something that happens. Yeah. Cause that, that right or wrong kind of brain will take over when you see that crazy, you know, whatever on Facebook and we all will buy in, in that moment, all four of us will buy into, if I can say the right thing here, if I can string along the perfect kind of paragraph, I'll be able to show them how much of an idiot they are for saying that thing. <laughs> and it never, and it, it never works, does it? And, and it, never, it, it has never once worked because the only people who the only people in my life who will say, you know what? I haven't thought about it that way. That's super interesting. I think I'm changing my mind. The only people who will pull that move are people who are already kind of in some of these later human development places, right? Because they can pull off that move where like I, anyone in my life who says like, oh, I was wrong about that or I changed my mind or I didn't think of it that way, like instant respect, right? Because that is hard to do. And you only see that with, you know, later stages of human development. Um, it's not going to happen because I wrote the perfect thing on Facebook. Although every time my brain thinks, but this time I can do it. <laughs> yeah, all the time and, and probably never. And never. There's, there's something hugely satisfying sometimes about it. Even if they, oh, you don't change your mind. You I know? am not above oh. righteous, you know, yeah. righteous anger and, feels and good, high man. road. Oh, it feels so good. Feels oh, good. it feels so good. And it's so petty. All right. So last chapter here is on faith, beliefs, and revolutionary love. So it talks about something that all three of you have hit on, which is that, um, and Bill, I feel like you, you touched on this the most, was that faith before doubt is about correct beliefs and faith after doubt is about revolutionary love. So it's the shift of letting go like Bill said, which is something we've all had to do, which is I may never know what's fully going on here. Um, but I have this moment with my wife. I have this moment with these people to just share what a mystery this is to be on earth and, it, you know, try to be a loving person and show up as the best human I can be. That shift is another door that opens kind of after, after doubt. Um, and this is where you get into, you know, his thoughts on Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, kind of this next level, kind of revolutionary kind of love. This is where you get into Paul saying, this is the whole law, just love your neighbor as yourself. And then what I really like in this chapter is this deep question, which I just think is such a good question, is that he asks, it's not, are you a Christian or atheist? It's what kind of Christian or atheist are you? And this is something that Bill and I podcasted about when we had on Thomas Ord, who's a lead Christian theologian. And we were, as we were talking, we kind of all figured out that the line between the most spiritual atheist and the most deconstructed Christian is just a hair. Like it was just right there. Um, you know, whereas it seems like 
Christianity and atheism are so far apart. It depends on what kind, right? And then there's some kinds of Christianity and atheism where it's about being right, that it's essentially developmentally, you're at exactly the same level, right? And so I just love that question of it's not the ism that you're attached to. What kind of ism are you? Which I thought was really interesting that he brought that up. Thoughts? Yeah, I've often thought about that when I was at the Center for Action and Contemplation, and I would hear things from um, other religions. I, I started noticing, oh, those Sufis, I like the way they're talking about things, you know? And and I, after a while, I started noticing like, oh, I actually feel closer to the contemplative strain in each of these different traditions than I think I do with the tradition I came from, right? And he talks about that, how it's, it is more about how you, how, what your lens is, how you view the world. Um, we tend to get closer as you get more into those contemplative spaces. They're closer to each other than they are the tradition they came from. Yes. I, as I was reading this, I, first of all, I thought, what an amazing, he kind of leads you to like, I was asking the questions of this chapter as I, you know, be right before I got to it. Like he knows he's, he's dealt in these areas and with these topics long enough because, because that's, I'm like, okay, we're talking about where I'm reading about faith after doubt, but like, what even meaning am I going to attribute to faith now? What, what is he, where is he leading me? What is that? And he answers it, that it's this revolutionary love that that yeah, and I would and I would add a word like trust to it. So we had faith used to be about right belief or correct belief and trust in that. And now the meanings that he's attributing is faith after doubt is revolutionary love and trust in that. That um and I just, I just thought it was, it's a beautiful chapter. I recommend everyone read this chapter, particularly how he refers to um, different scriptures. Um, uh, I think in this chapter, he talks about Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and he talks about Jesus. And he, like you mentioned, he talks about Paul. And, and um, he teases out that these messages are part of what are in these texts. And perhaps that's why they're uh, enduring uh, for so long in terms of impacting people, because this message is actually part of what's in there. Yeah. And like Jana said, when you get to this place, you see, yeah, you see Sufis hang out there. You see people on mushrooms who are talking about this stuff. You see atheists who can talk about this. You see Christians who can get into this space and and kind of rework the words from what we may have, you know, we may think of faith as certainty because that's maybe how it's talked about, but, you know, we can redefine it to go to this place um, where it's talking about more revolutionary love and that there's a lot of isms that can get there and there's a lot of isms that can point to it there. And so it's kind of a place that can, where the isms just don't seem to matter as much. And that place gives me a lot more just openness and compassion instead of feeling like, Oh, I'm the only atheist at the table. I'm lonely. Like it does like that place doesn't have an ism. And so um, you don't have to play that game of which side or the divide are you on? which is helpful for me in being more compassionate. I mean, a hundred percent. This is, 
and I, I want to include the secularists and humanists and, you know, atheists in that. When when atheists are using that lens of love and coming from that, there's there's very little difference there as well. I have more in common with those type of people, right? Um, Richard Rohr talks about this in the Universal Christ. It's this idea that, you know, he's challenging the way that religious people see this um, in stages one and two and saying how so many people are leaving religion right now. And Brian talks about this as well. There are a lot of people who are becoming nuns. It's the fastest growing group of people. Um, but Richard says we don't have to see that as people leaving what he terms as the universal Christ, which is it's big enough for all of us. It's the thing that runs the divine that runs in and through all of us. Um, and he says, you know, I don't think Christ really cares if you if you're calling him the right name. You know, that's a very stage one and two way to look at things. From stage four, you're just happy that people are doing good in the world. And it really does not matter where they situate. If they find that some sort of a religion helps support them in that space, great. If you find that you are doing better work without a religion and that calls to you, great. And we don't have to be so precious about what we are calling God. What, what I call God these days is just that force for goodness. And I can see how all the different definitions of God are pointing to it. I don't have to take things literally. And that is another one of the gifts of stage four that I'm sure we'll get into later on. But And I'm sure in your practice, you get a lot of people who ask you, like, should I stay in or should I leave? Right. Mm -hmm. I get people who ask me this all the time. All the time. But by reframing the question, you can ask yourself, well, what kind of put whatever, what kind of seculars, what kind of atheist would you like to be? What kind of Christian would you like to be? That's a better question than should I be in or out? Because 100%. that's just, yeah, that's just going to get you stuck because uh, then you start playing the pros and cons games. Well, I get this from this and I get this, but I don't agree with this. And um, that having to be on one side of the divide or other, I, I see a lot of people get stuck with that question because it's just sometimes a hard question to, to ask yourself. And a better question is what kind of ism do you want to be? And then where can you, where can you be that? And maybe Absolutely. it's in, Maybe it's in relationship with a religion, but maybe not. Hundred percent. Where where can you be well? Mm. You know, some some people experience a lot of trauma being part of any particular group. Other people find it to be liberating. So it really is a question that we dive deep in in my office into. You know, it's a question I never answer for people. It's always leads to more questions about a person's experience. Yeah. I, uh, Brian is writing this book from a Christian perspective and the four of us come from arguably to some, but a Christian perspective. Right. And so the question is like, how, what's the utilization or what's the usefulness of Christianity? And I, I don't know. I don't, I don't really like that. Like that's the framing for this book Although he quotes lots of people, Alan Watts, Eckhart Tolle, he, he mentions all these names and, and uses their words too. The New Testament is, again, I'm only speaking for me. The New Testament isn't absolute truth. It isn't, it, there are people who I think wrote, 
at least in part, the sacred text to nudge us into encountering the mystery of life. And the folks who in the end got to determine what these texts were used for weren't that group. And so whether it's the Bhagavad Gita, whether it's the Quran, whether it's the Book of Mormon, whether it's the New Testament or the Old Testament, trying to find the right book is the wrong approach. And all of those books can be used to encounter the mystery of, of life, but none of those books are the secret manual to do it. And, and so are other voices. Again, Brene Brown, uh, Alan Watts, Eckhart Tolle, uh, Richard Rohr, uh, Rob Bell, um, Jordan Peterson, and Sam Harris both. And the reality is that if you're trying to find the right religion rather than find where you can best thrive dealing with the mystery of the world and, and, and of life and not feel pressured to, to assume that the people who designed um, the process by which these books are encountered to take them seriously, because I, I wouldn't that instead these are simply texts that can be a finger pointing at the moon and none of them are really that close to the moon at all, including Jesus himself, who I, I, again, this is me stepping into maybe troubled waters, but to think a person reanimated and walked on water and did all these miraculous things. I think when you're dealing with Jesus on was his magic real or not, I think you're missing the most important parts of that book. Yeah, I mean, my understanding, and the Givens re refer to this in their book, All Things New, um, the, the message of Jesus resulted in uh, groups. It wasn't an institution. It, it was groups of people that gathered together across socioeconomic class, uh, be belief, tradition, and um, there weren't hierarchies, and, and they were focusing about on the things like doing the things that are part of these messages that eventually got aggregated and maybe embellished and added into these sacred texts, and, and it later became institutionalized. It later added texts that were pseudepigrapha the and and added the hierarchy and the power and the control to it um, but the underlying experience of doing of 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 clothing the naked and sheltering the stranger and feeding the hungry and visiting the sick and the imprisoned uh, of doing those things connected to people and it became an enduring merit uh, message uh, and movement but like what Bill said, like these glimpses of what the is is manifest in many different traditions as human beings try to actualize or express what those things mean to them. Whether it's Brene Brown, whether it's Maya Angelou saying, you're only free when you realize you belong no place, you belong every place, no place at all, the price is high, the reward is great. 
all these different voices are expressing, I think, similar things. Can I just say one more thing, which is the wrong people controlled and defined the message. Jana, you mentioned the Garden of Eden earlier. There are a hundred ways in which the Garden of Eden can be used as a allegory or a metaphor or symbolic, and almost all of them would be better than fighting over whether there was a literal garden 6,000 years ago in which Adam and Eve, the first humans, were there. And so the folks, the folks who controlled and interpreted and defined the message were the folks who imposed power and unhealthy, um, unhealthy motives behind what they were trying to accomplish. And the folks who were much more humble and wise probably got knocked out of the way. And so to deal with Jesus and his descent, to deal with the Garden of Eden, to talk about uh, these stories, there's just such better ways to use them. And so we're accepting them and discarding them based on the wrong people who got in the way. And and we ought to start taking these stories to a whole nother level. And it may just be our reality too. I'll, I'll go in the new Jenna of, of um, institutions. It just may be what humans have to do. It just may be part of, of, just developmentally what we humans do. Right. And so instead of like just continually, which we kind of get into when we get into postmodernism or deconstruction or when we're in our like burn everything phase, it may feel like, you know, let's just tear down these institutions and make better ones. But it seems like historically the institution is always there kind of pulling that move, taking the mysticism that it doesn't understand and putting power into it because of our own fears and our own need for safety and order and all of that. And so um, it may just be kind of human reality that institutions are always there. But I love what I love about holy books um, is, is all the talk about the wilderness. Like, go if you really want to know what's going on, the prophets are out in the wilderness. They're, they're living on bugs out there, half naked, telling you what's really going on. Um, And you can find other people and you may not be in the same place, but you can kind of wave to each other out in the wilderness, right? And uh, so if you're listening to this and you're kind of out in the wilderness, maybe that's how it's always been. There's always been an institution and there'll always be kind of a wilderness of people who are doing this kind of, you know, ego work or mysticism or re- revolutionary love or ego death, whatever you want to call it. And maybe that's just kind of always how we have to do it because we're just so human. And as soon as you tear down an institution, we just kind of make another one, just human nature. Jenna. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think part of what I, what I'm reading in this chapter from Brian and I love his examples. I don't have it right in front of me, but he has examples of people who've really wielded their Christianity in horrific ways, you know, popes that were just despots and, and imperialists and, and uh, which is the exact opposite message of what <laughs> Jesus is, but um, but he he also says for every one of those we have a Saint Francis of Assisi, like we have people for whom these texts brought them to something very very different that is really to be um, admired, and it they really. Um, it brought them to a place of letting go of their ego, of true transformation, of opening that up. And yeah, I believe the Bible is not the only one that's going to do that, right? But um, 
that so many of us, it, it is so tempting to want to just throw it all out. And for some people, that is the right answer. But what I what I think Brian, that Brian's invitation to, and he's doing it through the lens of Christianity, that is this idea that there is something also really supremely beautiful in the human experience that is bigger than all of that. And in perplexity, it's really hard to see sometimes. Um, the, the experience of being at this, the Center for Action and Contemplation at the Living School for me, one of the most profound things that it did for me, because I was having the total Jesus crisis going in, having all the perplexity and what the heck am I doing in a Christian school when I don't even know that I believe in this guy, right? And it, it built something. I started, what it did is I studied all the history you guys are talking about and seeing that and seeing the lenses that I had received these stories through allowed me to set those aside and see a bigger picture. And through that lens, through the lens of love, through the lens of something bigger, I could reclaim what was beautiful in that story. And I could reclaim what is really truly meaningful to me in Jesus. And I find those echoes in so many other traditions. And I find those echoes in, in um, really beautiful secularists and atheists who are doing such good work in the world. So it's, it's not about, it, it's, it's helpful to know these histories and do, this is again, that gift of doubt is to understand the lenses we were handed so that we can see a bigger picture and decide which pieces of those we still want to hold on to. And of those pieces, then we get to decide what, what invites me to that? What in this life invites me to that? Is it religious community? Is it not religious community? Is it philanthropic work? Is it something else? Like, what is it? What is it that, that invites me into that place? Mm, I really love that. All right. Uh, Anthony, did you have a last thought? And then I'll kind of wrap up here. Yeah, thanks. In, I, was, I think I was in this part that he uh, lets the reader know that this book is primarily seems that, like he is writing it for people who are in perplexity. Right. Um, and uh, recognizing at the same time that people who are in perplexity are going to ultimately be very skeptical right, of what they're reading. So like you're writing a book for people that are going to be skeptical of what you're saying. But at the same time, I, I wanted to make this observation at the same time, as we discussed earlier in this episode, is that at different times in our lives, we're all in that stage of perplexity. And so, um, you know, could someone in in those first two stages read this book and extract something good from it? P perhaps. Because maybe they do have some things during in their life that where they've experienced perplexity, perhaps, um, even if it's not their right belief, faith having crumbled on them. But I thought I just wanted to mention that that was an interesting observation as I was reading this part of of what who the book is written for and how they might respond to it. 
Yeah, it's almost like, like you said, you're reading it and you're coming up with things, Anthony, as you're reading it. And then he's answering it because he's writing to the skeptic who's reading it. It's like a conversation that he knows because yeah, he he's had it so many times. He's like, right. okay, when I write this, the next thing that they're going to ask is yeah. this. And then he answers the question. Right. Well, right, and so, considering, yeah. considering LDS people that might be reading this from that space, there is a phrase that he uses a couple of times in these chapters that it just trigger warning. He, he uses the phrase, doubt your doubts. So just know <laughs> <laughs> that when he says it, he is not using it as a tool to drag you back to stage one and two, yeah. which is how it typically gets used in our circles. Doubt so. your doubts. <laughs> Bill already has it That's ready. hilarious, yeah. yeah. There it which, is. Which in that, yeah, in that phrasing, it was like, doubt this side of things, but don't touch this side of things. And it's like, doubt doesn't really work like that, Bill. Just, I just want to know, with that quote I just played, notice that doubting your doubts is a good thing, but doubting the doubting of your doubts is a bad thing. But doubting the doubting of the doubting of your doubts is a good thing, but doubting the doubting of the doubting of the doubting of your doubts is a bad thing. See, that that's not real. That's just playing word games. Yeah. That's somebody who wants to keep you from doing one thing and impose that you do another rather than let you actually explore uh, the data, the conversation and the wrestle. When to go, go through the doorway. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm feeling compassionate and someone says something like that to me or just out loud, the, the most compassionate thing I can do is like, oh, you're clinging to order here. Like you want to doubt this, but like you want to, keep this place of order and safety. And when I understand it from that lens, I can understand like, Hey, I do that too. Like I spent many, you know, times where I'm like, Ooh, I don't want to touch this thing because if I lose this thing, I'll be in chaos. I can understand that place. And then I can see that this person is being a human just like me. And I can get a little bit of compassion there, but I have to go there or else um, I can sometimes get snippy. <laughs> uh, the, way, the way I read Brian's doubt your doubts is a very different thing. It's it's a it's an invitation to move beyond intellectualism and cynicism and and incessant questioning and open yourselves up to a deeper experience of being human. That's the way yeah. I read it. And it's and it's and it's open and it is not it's not don't doubt your one faith. and two. It yeah. is not go back to belief. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is a good disclaimer for our LDS audience. So I'm going to read one last thing and then we'll wrap up here. There's just a message that he wrote that I just felt would be really good to the people listening. Um, he said that I wish I could go back to that younger me and bring this message. So this is the message, but I feel like we, any one of us could have written this. I know that your perplexity feels like a dead end, but wait and endure, persist, do your work, see it through, hang in there, trust the process, and it will become a passageway, a birth canal. You actually need this. Um, and unknowing will prepare you for new depths of living, knowing and loving. There is much that deserves to be doubted. And if you really care about the truth, you must pursue it using doubt as a necessary tool. I know you feel everything you value is slipping through your fingers, but don't clench your fists, open your hands, your open hands, open eyes and open heart will prepare the way for new gains, not just new thoughts, but new ways of thinking. You have already added dualistic thinking, pragmatic thinking, and deconstructive thinking to your skill set. You will soon learn a new skill of non-dual seeing in which knowing and no unknowing, faith and doubt, clarity and mystery are not opposites but complements. So if you're in that place and 
we continue to bump into that place just as humans, as we go through this process, um, that invitation to just unclench the fingers and kind of open up to it, I think is just advice that I wish I could give myself to, because I think that there were times where I made this process harder than it needed to be because it was just like Anthony said, it was scary. It's scary. And my five second trauma disclaimer is make sure you find very, very safe places to do this and be very patient with this being a step-by-step-by-step process of being able to unclench your fists because you're clenching them for very good reason. Yeah, it's helpful to have mentors and communities that are safe where you can be witnessed in your experience and unconditionally loved in the process. And he says to thank those that have walked the walk and been available to you in your journey. And I, uh, I wrote down just before we started, uh, that I, it says, thank up there, thank fellow travelers. And that was a reminder to me to thank the three of you who, um, there have been a lot of people on this journey who I have felt camaraderie with but maybe none of them more than you three. Thank you. I love you, my friend. Thank you. Love you, Bill. Love you guys. See, this is what we should do. feeling is mutual. From now on, the podcast is me and Bill shut up about all the stupid things (laughs) we're trying to learn, and we just all pause and tell each other how much we love each other because maybe that's just, you know, more of what it's about. And, you know, Anthony, I just love your honesty with deconstruction, like you're, it takes courage to say like, it was scary. I was terrified. And like, Jana, you are my both and girl. And I can see your face sometimes when we're talking and I'm like, I know the next word she's going to say is and, and, and Bill, you, you push us and you'll push back where we need to be pushed. And I just, yeah, I love you guys so much. So from now on, we're just going to love each other on this podcast. That's it. Because that's just what it's all about. (laughs) 100%. All right. I'm excited for the next one. Yeah, we'll do a part three um, after the holidays. Bill and I, uh, we have Nick Jenkel on next week, who is the author of Spiritual Atheist. We're super excited to talk to him. And then the week after, Bill and I are going to do our favorite stories um, or messages from Jesus for Christmas. Mm. And we're going to dive into, like Jana said, what are the parts, the beautiful parts that I want to take with me? Mm. So we're going to... Um, we're going to give a pause to our normal skeptic selves and dive into things that we still love about Jesus for Christmas. So thank you everyone for, for listening. And as always, please continue to support the podcast so we can keep having these conversations. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. This has been another almost awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, Email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman.